Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. And today we got a Q&A, and I'm going to be sniffling along the way. I'm uh, still recovering a bit. I fu- that's like the worst part about being sick. Like I, you, you feel good. And you're like, my energy's back. My body's not fatigued. I'm ready to train again. I'm excited. But I'm, dude, I have like a roll of tissue paper on my desk and I'm just blowing my nose every 10 minutes, freaking hacking up, um, just coughing. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just, that's the part that fucking lingers. It's the aftermath. Dude, it's so annoying. I don't know what happened to me, but that shit fucked me up. Um, and there was a really good lesson behind it all, actually. Take a break. Slow the fuck down. Deload every aspect of your life. That was kind of the thing I tried to pull from it. Because I was like, I was talking to Emily about this on Monday. And and there's probably some people who can relate to this. I can I can get five hours of sleep. And I really don't feel the effects the next morning. Like, I'm tired in the morning. But, like, when I wake up and I'm like, okay, I know what I'm doing. Like, I'm fine. And I can just go. I don't care if I get seven or five. I don't really feel that much of a difference. Granted, it's definitely not good for me and it builds up over time, but it's like a double-edged sword. It's like, it doesn't phase me, which is great, but then at the same time it builds up and then when it hits me, it just fucking rocks my world. So uh, we fucking, uh, it was funny, it was actually Shannon's idea. She was like, we should take the TV out of our bedroom. We're going to like take it off the wall, mount on the wall and that way like you're for, because otherwise we go lay down and I'm tired and I'm ready for bed and then Netflix starts and I'm like, an hour goes by and I'm like, fuck, I'm still up, you yeah. know, and it's 1130 before I know it. And, uh, so we took it down and it was like, uh, so that was, we took it down on Sunday. Yesterday was Monday. Last night she was like, we should put it back. This, this is kind of, I was like, no, we're not like, we have to go at least a week and see if it actually makes a difference, you know? And it's, it's mainly for me. It's not for her. Right? Yeah. She doesn't have to get up as early as I do. Um, but it helped a ton. Yeah. Just two nights of it already. I went to bed probably an hour earlier easily. Because once I lay down, I'm just out because there's nothing else to do. Yep. Um, but that, get back to meditating. Um, just a lot of like little things that I just was like, man, I just need to take more Be breaks. On point. Yeah, and just, just take care of my body more. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a workaholic by choice. Not because I have to, but I just get in that mode of like I want to. Mm-hmm. And then it ends up screwing me over. Um, but... And it probably couldn't have come at a worse time, too. I'm four weeks away, four and a half weeks out from the photo shoot. So I'm, like, trying to stay dialed in and train and do cardio, but feeling like shit. So. Yeah. Um, but you have get, that good radio voice now. I know. I, I, every <laughs> time one of us gets sick, it sounds good. Yeah. It sounds good on the podcast until I go like that, and then it sounds gross. But uh, nonetheless, we're going to rock this podcast. we got some good questions, and uh, let's just do it, man. Let's, let's get in. it. All right, cool. The first one is going to come from Cherise. It says, are there any initial indicators your body or metabolism is beginning to normalize after a long time of under under eating? For example, no period, digestion issues, or fatigue. How long does it generally take to see these positive changes when on a reverse diet? Um, so these are two kind of, uh, it's a confusing question because it sounded like she was asking like, at what point do you know the diet's gone on too long? And then she's also asking at what point or how long does it take through the reverse yeah. to fix them? So we'll kind of like layer this a little bit. Um, so one thing to point out before getting into the, uh, I, I think there's two classifications here, right? And so 
REDS, R-E-D-S, is Relative Energy Deficit Syndrome. And this is essentially, it's it's tr- typically with women more than anything, and it's, and it's called the female triad. And it's basically usually found in women athletes. Um, and we can classify anybody as athletes. I would consider myself an athlete. I treat myself like an athlete. I don't compete in anything. So uh, I, I use that term relatively speaking. I'm just people who train. Recreational athlete. Exactly. So this is where women lose their menstrual cycle. It's usually, it's only going to happen. I don't want to say only, but it typically happens when your body fat gets too low, not necessarily when your calories get too low. And I want to make that clear because I have worked with countless people who, who both have poor biofeedback by the end of the diet and it's expected because they're in a diet, but don't lose their menstrual cycle Mm because we didn't take body fat levels so low that they're um, losing their period by the time they get to the end of it, which is usually going to happen in either uh, bodybuilding bikini figure competitors or uh, high-level CrossFit track athletes, people who are training so rigorously that they end up getting extremely lean and there's so much energy going out that it's hard to replace that energy going sure. in. They get extremely lean because their energy expenditures through the roof and it's almost hard to eat enough calories to even uh, avoid getting that lean, right? Which is why, uh, like, the only person I can really think of off the top of my head is uh, Matt Frazier, who obviously didn't go through any of that. But, I mean, that guy had to eat so many calories when he was uh, consistently winning the CrossFit Games. And uh, he talks about it in his book. I mean, the dude was eating insane amounts. But he was also eating Snickers bars every day and stuff like that. Because if he didn't, he would have ran himself into the ground. And that's why he also wasn't the most shredded CrossFit competitor. He was lean, but he wasn't like... Some of those guys are just absolutely shredded. And it kind of it allows you to kind of put two and two together. Like he's not the leanest, but he's by far the best competitor. He crushes everybody. Why is that? Well, it's because he's not allowing his energy output to uh, overcome his energy input. Right. Um, And sometimes you got to eat fucking Snickers bars and shit like that to get that amount of calories coming in. Um, So typically the reds is, is really only going to happen with those type of clients. There are some times where similar symptoms can happen uh, during menstrua, uh, uh, when you're going through um, menopause, when you're older in age. And so this is completely different. There's some similar symptoms, but it's not because you're training too hard or dieting too hard. It's because you're going through menopause. So we don't want to get those mixed up. If somebody's going through a fat loss phase and they're happening to go through menopause and they're experiencing some of these things, it's not because you're training too much or too hard or anything like that. It's just because your body's going through that transition in life. Um, now, there's also the... Uh, I've even had competitors, bikini competitors, not lose their period, to be honest, they get on stage and they've been fine, um, or lose it at the last minute, and it's really like, they lose it just weeks before they go to their show, they go to their show, then we start reversing, they recover pretty quickly. The 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 less amount of time you can be in that position where you have lost your menstrual cycle and you're that lean, the better. Um, however, typically, that's it's not the case. Usually, it's not happening on purpose, but nonetheless, um, it's, it's more common to see the typical biofeedback markers. And when we think of those things, they're pretty normal and they're pretty damn reversible. And they're, they're usually pretty related to calorie intake as well as body fat levels. Um, outside of like serious cases of reds, they're, they're, they're pretty parallel as far as if your calories are too low, we are going to see negative biofeedback markers like bad sleep, uh, cravings, high stress, bad recovery, lack of performance in the gym, lack of sex drive, lack of focus, clarity. Um, typically, some like low thyroid symptoms. Uh, I mean, your thyroid slows down, but also uh, this is where 
nails and hair get brittle. Your skin is dry and crackly. You're like, you could cut yourself and it wouldn't heal as quickly. Um, your metabolism just isn't working as fast as metabolic adaptation for men. We can add in the fact that testosterone gets lower as you go through the diet, uh, for both men and women, cortisol, the stress hormone gets higher and higher as you go through the diet, uh, because you're in more of a fight or flight response. So these things are all really common and they're just part of dieting. Um, they also happen when your body fat level is too low, but they can happen just from calories being too low. So we can reverse those through increasing our calories or adding body fat to our body. So there's a reverse diet and a recovery diet. Recovery diet is where we go really quick. So a competitor who gets shredded or gets reds or anything like that, they, they do add five pounds of fat like that, mm-hmm. but it's on purpose. It's intentional because a lot of your hormones are, are going to be balanced in, in, being produced properly because you have body fat on your body. So for a competitor who gets too lean, you actually do have to put some body fat on, which nobody likes to admit or wants to do, but you got to, and you do it right afterwards. But also a lot of us aren't getting that shredded, right? Then there's other people like even myself. So I'm going through this, uh, this diet right now. I'm, I'm at a point where I'm getting pretty lean and, you know, and we're like, I mean, now we're hitting the burners and the last four weeks is going to be a grind, more cardio, cutting calories harder because uh, some fat loss supplementation, which we'll do content on soon, so I'm not going to talk too much about that. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm going to be pushing my body at the last four weeks, so I'm going to experience some of those symptoms too. Most of them are just going to be reversed. Now, the most severe ones that I would experience as a male is lowering of testosterone levels, which is going to be based on calorie intake and body fat on my body. So when I get to my end point, I get to make a decision. This is kind of where everybody gets that last part of their cut. And if they're experiencing a lot of these symptoms, which not everybody does, and I'll get to that in a sec too, you kind of have to make a decision like, how bad do I want to stay this lean? And if your your biofeedback symptoms are gr- too great to where it makes it very hard and unsustainable or just straight up unhealthy to, to stay that lean, it's probably better to make the trade-off of being that lean yeah. and being healthy, Right. Now, I would also say there's plenty of times where even people like me, I I might get to that point and I might be like, honestly, I don't feel that bad. I'm just tired. And if I'm just tired, so like biofeedback points, tired, uh, fatigue, not progressing in the gym, those are all, you know, we're not recovering well from training. Those are all things that are purely based on calorie intake. You know, I could add body fat to my body, but it's not going to improve my training performance. But if I strategically add calories in with a reverse diet slowly, then I can improve those negative biofeedback markers without adding body fat to my body. So sometimes going really slow is actually okay. So we'll be able to tell in, in about four and a half, five weeks if if I'm in that position or not. If I'm in a place where I'm like, I still have sex drive, I'm still sleeping through the night, I don't have any like health issues, fuck it, I'm gonna go super slow and stay lean and just focus on having enough energy to get through my training and progress mm-hmm. again, um, which is gonna be through calories. But if I get to the point where I'm like, I have no sex drive, I'm sleeping like shit and I'm depressed. Yeah, I should probably just add a little bit of body fat because I got too lean. I don't think I'm going to get that lean because I'm not trying to be bodybuilding shredded. I'm trying to be uh, way leaner than I am. But I mean, my goal is to like get to that line, like get to the edge of the cliff and not like go over it. But what's the definition? You don't really know until you get there. That's why I'm saying like, I don't really know. And the only reason I say it like that too is because I, I like the idea of people opening the app when we relaunch and oh I gotta show you after the podcast the new design it's so sick um but when people launch I like the idea of them seeing somebody training who they're like damn that dude's ripped but I could probably get there like yeah. it's not like absolutely insane like we see some people that like a lot of people I follow that are in the bodybuilding world they get to the stage and I'm like that's dope but 
I'm not doing that. Yeah. Like, I'm just not, it's just not in the cards for me. Um, it's not realistic for a lot of people. Exactly. Yeah. Now, if I get beyond what I want to get to, I'm not going to stop myself. But th- that would be that point where I'd be like, okay, we got to pull back faster. Mm. So we'll, we'll see. But the reason I kind of break down that context is because I think for gen pop people, there's this thing right now with, uh, and I've talked about this a few times, but there's this thing where people assume they need to reverse diet more aggressively and or they assume people uh, need to eat more calories when they don't, right? I see this a lot with newer coaches being afraid to drop their calories low, uh, their clients' calories low, and they'll bring on somebody who has 50 pounds to lose and they're like, oh, they're under eating, I need to reverse diet them. It's like, no, they don't. You need to educate them on how to track properly because if they're 50 pounds overweight, they're not under eating, they're overeating. They're just not tracking properly for you to see that, right? And I would say like literally 1% of people in the population have a hormonal dysfunction that would cause them to be able to undereat that severely and still gain body fat. It's extremely rare. And even if somebody's listening, they're like, well, I have PCOS or thyroid dysfunction, that's like a 10% max difference, which means like if you should be maintaining on 2,500 calories, you're maintaining on 2,250. That doesn't like scare me a bunch. But when somebody comes to me that should be maintaining on 2,500 calories and they're only eating 1,500 a day and they're not losing weight and they're 50 pounds overweight, that's where I'm like, okay, there's, that's too big of a contract or discrepancy. Unless you have some crazy hormone issue going on, which is very, very unlikely, 99% chance you don't, then we just need to properly educate you. You know, um, And I've been doing this long enough to say that with confidence because I've seen it happen so many fucking times. Um, but... Anyway, the metabolic adaptation is basically what this person is really asking about. Based on what we know, and I've, I've actually quizzed Brandon uh, Roberts, our chief science officer on this, metabolic adaptation tends to start picking up at about three weeks into the diet. I think it happens immediately because metabolic adaptation is essentially your body adapting to a deficit. And if you think about it, the second you go into an energy deficit, I'm sure your your body's smart enough to know that like, okay, something's not going on right here, right? Like I'm, I'm taking in too little calories for me to do my normal thing. So I'm trying to figure out how to adjust. Yeah. It takes about three weeks for it to actually cause any type of slowdown. And that's where people typically talk about it as metabolic adaptation. So about three weeks into a diet, we're going to start seeing a little bit of that metabolic adaptation. So I would guess that about three weeks into a reverse diet, we're going to start seeing a relief of those symptoms. Now, I would also say there's no studies to prove this because there's really no real research done on reverse dieting at all. It's all just theoretical uh, hypothesis from different researchers pulling from all these other types of metabolic research, which is fine. But my guess would be the longer you're in a chronic deficit or a deep deficit, aggressive deficit, anything... The, longer, the more weeks you can tack on to that three-week process. Meaning like normally we might see start seeing a reverse of these symptoms after being at maintenance for three weeks long. But if you were in a deficit for way too long, then it might be six weeks before you start seeing any type of improvement. Mm. And I would also add that this doesn't mean three weeks into your reverse. This means three weeks after you hit maintenance. Because a lot of times, even if I talk about my situation, if I go really slow, well, I might go really slow for six weeks before I finally hit my maintenance which would mean if we really think about it that way, it's like nine weeks before I start reversing those symptoms, which that's where the trade-off kicks in. Am I okay not progressing in the gym and not recovering as good as I possibly can for nine total weeks so I could stay this lean? You know, and it's a personal decision. It's a personal decision. When you say it out loud, it kind of sounds like, no, why would you do that? But at the same time, like having abs is pretty fucking cool. And benching 305 pounds instead of 300 pounds 
is really cool to me, but nobody gives a shit, (laughs) you know? And, and like, really, I don't even really give a shit to be honest with you because that's not what I'm into. So like, if I think about, you know, I, I had my like landmarks, 300 was my thing. So like once I hit 300 pound bench, I'm like, I could never hit a bench PR again. I really don't give a shit to be honest with you. Um, same with deadlift. I hit 500. I'm cool. Like, I don't care. I could probably push that and go, but I just don't care that much. So it's a personal decision of whether we want, you know, so for the person who's like, no, it's not worth it. It's like, okay, well that like six week build up until we get to maintenance, we're going to make that three weeks. So instead of nine weeks, it's six weeks or fuck, we're going to make it one week. We're just gonna go right there in a week. You're going to gain a little bit of weight, but that's okay because we're going to get you performing well again, like you really want. So you just have to weigh out what you want most. Um, and most of these biofeedback symptoms are the same thing. So the degree of negative symptom leads to the severity of reverse dieting, meaning that, you know, if, if if it's just like I said, just recovery in the gym, stuff like that, I can weigh out the pros and cons. But when we start getting into thyroid health, testosterone health, like internal issues, like if somebody's trying to have a baby and they're like, well, I really want to stay lean to reverse diet. I'm like, okay, yeah, but like if it's a dude, your testosterone's fucked up, your thyroid's probably fucked up, your cortisol's through the roof, you have no sex drive. So what's more important here, staying lean or having a kid? Like, I think it's an obvious answer. Having a kid, we go fuck the reverse diet. Let's just get you healthy again. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's a completely personal decision, and it's also uh, a lot of it is is greatly dependent on. Uh, and I did a reel about this. I haven't posted yet. Um, the thriftiness of your metabolism. So uh, a thrifty metabolism is is uh, what they coin as basically like an adaptive metabolism. So you have a thrifty metabolism typically if. Maybe you don't respond super well to a deficit, a small deficit, but you respond really well to a reverse diet. So in the, in the, what this is, is your body's ability to compensate its energy expenditure or its energy flux is really good. And what that means is like, if I start reverse dieting you, you're not gaining any weight, not gaining any weight, not gaining any weight. And we're kind of like, holy shit, like maybe you getting leaner is we have to eat more. You are in starvation mode is what they thought. No, it's because you have a thrifty metabolism, meaning when I give you more food, you don't realize that, but you, you take more steps per day. You push a little bit harder in the gym. You, you end up parking further away. You're going to get the mail more often. You're taking dog for more walks. You're standing more. You're talking more. You're fidgeting more. And you have no idea that you're doing it because it's all subconscious. Steps are the only thing we can really track with that. Um, and I'm even noticing it with little things like uh, I went and got the mail the other day and there was just like so much shit in there. And like I always get the mail like at least every other day because I like walking. But when I'm kind of tired from dieting, I'm like, I don't give a fuck about the mail. Yeah. Honestly, I don't because I don't check any, like, I do, Shannon manages his bills. So I'm like, I don't give a shit what's in there. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't check. So that's one of the things I have to be aware of. Like, I saw it piling up and I'm like, okay, fuck, I got to set a reminder to get the mail because I know that my natural meat is lowering because the diet's hitting me. So um, that would be a, a thrifty metabolism mine fluctuates really easily. And then I increase my calories. And what do you know? I start walking more, talking more, fidgeting, yeah. like everything kind of picks up. Um, and, and that, and the reason I bring that up to kind of round this out is because that determines uh, the speed at which you're going to reverse diet or going to be able to reverse diet, right? And, uh, and, and also how fast those uh, biofeedback symptoms are going to improve themselves. Um, but I ultimately think that, uh, you know, a lot of times gem pop people don't have to take any of this as crazy or serious as they think. I think if you have a lot of knowledge behind it and you understand the why and the mechanisms, you're going to be better off. But I don't think it's as crazy as is like a lot of the, the people who put out a lot of educational information on reverse diet or anything, they're coming from an, a standpoint of serious competitors in the bodybuilding space or athletes. And it's just a different world. Like 
you step on a bodybuilding stage, you are getting so absolutely shredded that it's it's completely different to reverse diet that person than a gym pop person. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of people that are like, you can't reverse diet because it's too slow and it's bad for you. Um, and I would disagree because I've worked with so many gym pop people that don't come to me and go, I want to get so fucking shredded I look like a freak. They're like, hey, I just want to lose this, like my belly. I don't even care if I have abs. So we're not getting you to a point where you're so lean that your biofeedback is super bad. So why can't we reverse diet you? Yeah. That's the whole point of dieting is to get lean and stay lean, you know? Um, so it's context specific. For sure. You know? It depends. Yep. All right, cool. That was good. Let's uh, go on to the next one. It comes from an anonymous. Uh, it says, new study showed a link between red meat and cancer. Do you have any thoughts on this? This I've gotten the cancer and red meat question so many times over the years because there's been multiple studies that have shown this over time. Um and remind me and I'll send you some links uh, and we can drop a link to the actual study and then we can drop a link to um, some of these other studies that kind of counteract it. So no, I, I mean, I don't have a ton of thoughts on this. The thing I will say is I just don't want people to be concerned about it. Um, and this is coming from somebody who definitely has done his due diligence to make sure that that's not... Um, that the link between red meat and cancer isn't strong enough to actually cause fear because I literally eat steak every single night for dinner, <laughs> like literally. Um, and it, it's, the truth is, is, I mean, number one, red meat has a lot of benefits that people don't often talk about. Red meat has a lot of vitamins and minerals that lean meats don't have. It also has a lot, if you get grass fed or organic or like good quality meats, just like I was talking about with the reverse dieting, hormones store in fat, right? So if we consider like omega-3s and fatty acids and good triglycerides and, and even just actual hormonal things, like that's all those nutrients and everything and that's stored in the fat. So sometimes it's good to have some of that fat. You don't want too much saturated fat in your diet, but there's also links with um, <clears throat> low saturated fat diets leading to low testosterone levels in men uh, as well as having uh, it, replacing it. So like adding back in saturated fat into the diet, not too much, but having some, increases testosterone in men. And it's not a matter of like more is better. So if you have a ton of saturated fat, you're just going to keep, it's like steroids. You're just going to keep increasing your testosterone. Mm -hmm. It's not the case. Um, but I got to imagine that it's going to apply to women for other hormones as well. Like the point is the saturated fat might be important for hormones. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the studies don't really worry me because it's more correlation than anything. So there's also a correlation between red meat eaters and smokers. Right. So like people who often eat red meat, for whatever reason, it's correlated to people who smoke cigarettes more often. Um, and if you start going down the chain of correlations, you can also correlate people who eat red meat regularly also eat fast food more regularly. Why is that? Because what do you get at a fast food restaurant 80% of the time? Chicken. Cheeseburger. <laughs> I know. Right? I that was, yeah. You know? Or you go to Arby's, you get roast beef. You go to Taco no, Bell, you I, get ground I, beef. Can't you correlate everything with everything then? I mean, to a certain extent, but that's, <laughs> yeah. but that's why you can't like certain studies you can't take with too much value because certain studies are more correlation based totally. than causation based. Totally. So did red meat cause cancer? No, it didn't. It was a correlated with cancer. Yeah. But is that going to scare me? No, because it's also correlated with X, Y, Z. Yeah. So if we consider that the meat quality used in most of the research is really bad and that it's also correlated with other aspects that's, that becomes an issue. There was also another study that kind of counteracted this because of the meat and cancer studies coming out. And it showed that uh, people eat meat often, but also didn't smoke, resistant trait, like they had basically like uh, exclusion criteria is what they call it, um, that canceled any of those bad correlations, 
there was absolutely no risk of cancer. So you could eat red meat often as long as you also had fruits and vegetables, right? So how would they like determine they'd have them eat red meat for four weeks and see if they have cancer now? There's, there's markers in your body that would, uh, increase, uh, I don't even know what they would be called. I don't know if they're cytokines, but like essentially like there's, there's blood level markers that you can read inside of your body that tell you if you're at a higher likelihood of cancer, wow. right? So why, how would we know that obese people are more likely to have cardiovascular disease? Well, when you're obese, you have markers in your body that tell us you are more likely to have cardiovascular disease. Okay. I'm not a doctor, so I'm not, yeah. you know, I'm not going to break down what those are because I don't fucking know. Yeah. But, um, essentially that's how they're reading it. Understood. But they had a study that showed people who eat red meat often uh, and also ate a specific amount. I can't remember the amount. We can link the study. Um, They had to also eat a certain amount of produce, so like vegetables and fruit. There was no risk, right? Which also makes you start kind of questioning the uh, research that shows being on a plant-based diet, so being on a vegan diet, uh, or it was a vegetarian diet. Because there was a a study that showed uh, being on a diet that is uh, fish, fruits, vegetables, so basically vegan plus fish, which is essentially vegetarian, but I don't think there was eggs included in that. Um, But point being on a vegan or vegetarian plant-based diet leads to lower chances of cancer, right? So those people saw that study and they go, oh, get rid of meat and you're less likely to get cancer. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, let's take that study and then add meat to it. Okay, no, you're good, (laughs) right? It's it's the fact that there's a correlation between people who eat red meat and all these other aspects, right? There's a correlation for... uh, Actually, I think there's somewhat of a causation for microwaves and cancer, oh, plastic yeah. containers and cancer. So you also got to wonder, like, um, I actually think that there there was a study that showed uh, basically eating anything increases the likelihood of cancer. And, and it's because when you are digesting food, certain enzymes are produced and stuff. And those enzymes, there is some kind of correlation or link to cancer. But you got to think about it. It's like, okay, well, when cancer is present, all these other normal things are present. So do correlations kind of wash out everything we're talking about? Yeah. So, um, so no, I'm not worried about the study. Um, I, I was asked about a couple of it. Uh, Lane Norton, somebody sent me his video and that was where I first saw the study. Um, he did a really good job breaking down the study as well. So if you haven't seen his YouTube, really informative, his uh, YouTube channel has that. We're going to have him on the podcast soon, which I'm excited for. Uh, but he talked about it and it was really good as well. Uh, but essentially it's, it's, it's more of a correlation based study and it's just not enough to really like scare me out of eating red meat. And I'm a big fan of <clears throat> shopping organic grass fed when it comes to fattier meats because of the fact that a lot of hormones and artificial things that are injected in t- inside of animals are going to be, uh, they're going to probably, um, absorb more into the fat of the animal and the meat from what I know. Therefore, if I am going to eat fattier cuts of meat or eggs and things like that with high fat, I'm going to go organic or grass fed. Also, because typically if you shop like local grass fed or anything like that, the animals are treated better. I do would prefer that. Some of the, like, if you watch any documentaries on like huge farms of chick, it's just gross. Yeah. It's sad. (laughs) Um, so I'm not ready to not eat meat, but I stay away from that, those kind of brands. Even if I got to pay a dollar more, I think it's worth it. Yeah. Um, so that's my two cents on it. Cool. Still eating steak. All right, cool. Let's uh, move on here to the next one. This is from Kendra de Guzman. It says, hello, Cody and Travis, if you are there. He's here. I'm here. <laughs> hey, Kendra. Uh, I'm curious to know if, if I were to have a 30-minute day to get or if I were to have 30 minutes a day to get some sort of cardio in during the hours of my secondary job, would my time best be put, 
put towards 30 minutes of steady-state incline walking or hit intervals for even a short duration, shorter duration than 30 minutes. My goal is fat loss. I don't consistently get 10,000 10, steps a day, so I'm torn between a calorie burn versus the higher need. Um, the first part of the question, did she say what she does for a living? Nope. Just that she has My sedentary job. Okay. Um, I would probably go with low intensity cardio. I think in most cases, like if I had to pick one for anybody who wants to just lose body fat, I'm going to choose list cardio over hit cardio for a few reasons. Number one, hit cardio is anaerobic. So if we are looking at the energy systems used to perform HIIT cardio, they are very similar, if not the exact same as strength training. If you do a barbell squat for five reps to 10 reps, which is normal, you're going to be doing it for anywhere between probably 10 to 30 seconds, and then you're going to rest for two minutes. That is a high-intensity interval training. So if we consider varying your energy systems, it's probably better to go with less. And then the other reason is because HIIT cardio is extremely intense, and that means it's going to be extremely sympathetic on our nervous system, which is going to ramp up adrenaline, cortisol, so on and so forth. And that's going to be a greater stress to recover from than less. So if we're talking about fat loss, I'm trying to manage stress and focus on purely a calorie burn. I think less wins every time. Yeah. Um, I would even say that there's times where LIS is probably going to be beneficial for recovery because when you do LIS, there is it's a low impact. If you really want to get nitty gritty with this too, you could do LIS on an elliptical or a bike, and that is non weight bearing. So there's really no force being generated to your joints. So you're not compressing your hip joint, your spine, anything like that, um, versus running basically. Um, or even walking, technically. If you're walking fast or jogging, it's still compression of the joints because you're you know, in the joints, but it's way lower impact. But nonetheless, if we remove that eccentric phase of a movement and that compression of the joints, it's just going to be literally moving joints and getting blood flow into the limbs, which is going to help you recover between sessions. So there's there's you know good research to prove this, and there's good reason to suggest doing list cardio um, after your workout or in between workouts, or if you're doing it on a separate time of day, even more so, because it's going to promote recovery rather than take away from it. Um, and then last but not least, it's also easier to track and record. So a good example of this is if I am uh, running, if I'm not like tracking steps, I'm like, I'm just doing intervals, right? Yep. And I'm sprinting on a treadmill. Um, I'm going to sprint as hard as I can. But that's, I mean, hard as I can is relative to the phase of the diet I'm in. You know, am I on week one of the diet or week eight of the diet? So if she's trying to lose fat, you know, and you add the fact that HIT is going to fatigue you as well over time, you're going to be generating more output at the beginning of a diet than at the end of the diet. And I would also say that you adapt to it. So you're going to be burning less as you do it anyway. So now you're high-intensity interval training that is very stressful is less productive weeks down the road than it is now, which is why I like HIT cardio at the beginning temporarily. So even for, for mine, we were doing two sessions a week of sprints, six rounds, 30 seconds, no, I'm sorry, one minute on, which becomes after 30 seconds, it's not even HIT. It's like just trying to not fall over while you jog as fast as you can, basically. Mm -hmm. But there was a study that showed 30-second uh, versus 60-second intervals in it, from like a fat loss perspective and from an aerobic perspective, it was better, which makes sense. But um, we were doing that at the beginning, but at a certain point of the diet, we just, we, like just recently, like a week ago, we cut them out. Now we're just doing this. And there's a reason for that because as this, the diet goes on, fatigue accumulates and stress accumulates. Um, and you're not recovering as well when you have more body fat and calories coming in as well. Your, your joints are more protected. So there's a lot of reasons to pull back on the hit. Um, and list tends to be better. But the main reason I'm talking about here is trackability. So 
anything we do, and this is why if if somebody somebody asked me on my story the other day, can I create a calorie deficit and lose fat just through cardio or do I need to pull calories from food? And the answer is you don't need to because a deficit is a deficit. However, calories are more trackable because if I pull 500 calories from my diet, I can guarantee it's 500 calories as long as I'm accurately measuring my food. If I do 500 calories worth of cardio, it's dependent on how accurate my tracker is or how accurate the treadmill is or if I'm using a different machine that day. You know, it's really just an equation based on um, heart rate, intensity, and uh, duration, right? So how fast is my heart beating? How long am I doing it for? And then what's my total body weight, high age, all that stuff. But the problem is, is like that equation doesn't really, like there's no like, assault bike in there. There's no rower. There's no sled. There's no walking. Like that changes the equation hundred percent. And so does how far along in the diet you are. So I burn more calories doing cardio at the beginning of my diet versus towards the end, but none of those things get factored in. So point being is it's less accurate to track calories burned through cardio than it is taken away from the diet. Um, and because of that, you could walk on the treadmill for less and just put your tracker on and track the steps through the cardio. Now, I don't always recommend doing that because I think, you know, neat is everything outside of intentional cardio. But if you know what your neat was before doing it, then it's totally sound because I could go into it going, okay, I'm doing 10,000 steps a day and I'm going to, I mean, you could literally go, all right, I'm going to do 10,000 steps a day. And then when I go to do my cardio, I'm going to check it. Right. And this is basically what I've done. I'm going to check it. And I have, uh, Let's say I'm at 7,000 steps and then I walk for 30 minutes and now I'm at 12,000 steps. I still have to get to 15 because on average, a 30 minute walk took me 5,000 steps, but I was at 7,000 before I started and I have to hit 10 of my neat. So what you do is on the days you're doing cardio, you just bump that 10K step goal to 15, right? You just make the difference, but you have to make sure you go into it knowing, okay, and the other, like you got to go into it knowing basically like what this 30 minute cardio, how many steps is that actually? And then how many steps do I get without it? And then that way you can do, do both. Yeah. Because you still got to hit that neat outside of your cardio because what will happen is your body will compensate. So if you hit 10,000 steps, but you also started like you're hitting 10,000 steps and you go, I'm going to start doing cardio in the morning and you wear the tracker and you do the cardio and you hit your 10,000 steps, you probably would have hit more hadn't you done it in the morning or if you didn't do it at all, but your body slows down throughout the day because it knows that it did some cardio and there's studies to prove that. Um, And then the last but not least, I actually tested this and it's very, I don't know what it is necessarily, but maybe it's because I'm on my phone or I don't know, but um, I tested basically like I did, I had to do, I have to do like a morning or a night walk to hit my step count every time. And I basically tested how long do I have to walk on the treadmill versus how long do I have to walk if I just go outside? right, to hit that step goal at the end of the day. And uh, I went in the garage and went on the trip because it was raining. And I feel like I'm, you know, it's at a good speed. I'm like, I feel like I'm doing my shit. But I'm also like texting, so you can't walk too fast. But if you're on a treadmill, I'm not going to just fucking stare at the wall. Mm-hmm. So I like, I'm answering emails, answering questions on Instagram. And I, I just do that for 30 minutes. And then when I'm outside, you can't because I might fucking trip on a pothole, right? So I listen to a podcast or something and I'm walking and I'm watching where I'm going and I get considerably more steps walking outside for the same duration of time than I do on a treadmill. So either A, I don't have to uh, do it as long if I go outside or I get more out of it. Um, and it's probably because I'm just like, I have no podcast and I'm just on a fucking mission. I'm just walking. I mean, I'm sorry. I have no uh, phone out and I'm just going. Um, but that's another variable, right? If I wasn't tracking, I would just assume that 30 minutes walking is 30 minutes walking. 
but because I track my steps, I know that 30 minutes walking outside for me is better, or I got to crank that fucking treadmill up. <laughs> and then I feel like I'm just like, and I can't yeah. text, speed you know, walking. which I guess is probably yeah. the reason why outside works better. So long-winded answer, but yeah, that's the, the kind of rundown. Totally. All right, we got one more here, guys. It says it's from Shannon FL. I don't know if that's Shan Florida or no. It says Florida. Cody, what journals do you suggest? Ooh. Um I think that so I always keep two. I like a uh I like having a a freehand journal because I think a freehand journal is nice to just like jot notes and then I usually have like a one with prompts in it. Um, there's so many. So uh, my advice on journaling in general is that I think that you should have a free hand journal, meaning there is no prompts in there. It's just blank pages. And I think that's useful to take notes on when you're reflecting on experiences or you have ideas. Like mine is like basically just my idea book. Um, maybe it's because I'm a business owner and a content creator. But for me, if I see something, I write it down. If I have an idea for a YouTube video or a podcast or anything, I write it down. If I have ideas for the business or something to implement into our software or systems for clients, I just, I need something handheld to write it down and kind of just free ball. Right. And then when it's the quarter, I reflect on the quarter. I map out quarterly goals. I do all that in a blank journal. Now, what I recommend for journaling for those who don't need a freehand journal um, and I recommend everybody who does that too. Like I recommend from a journaling perspective, you should have something that has prompts in it too, because I don't care how experienced you are. It just gets difficult to think of exactly, you know, gratitude and, you know, message of the day and like all the things that they put in there. Like yeah. you're not going to think of that shit off the top of your Every head. Every single day. Yeah. You're, you're just not right. Um, unless you copy one from online and then you purposely write what they created in your open journal. And but you, then you might as well get a guided journal. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what I recommend for most people who are trying to get into journaling, like you're new to journaling, I would go with the five minute journal. Um, the five minute journal is quick and easy as you can imagine. And it's just basically about gratitude. So it's literally like, there's like three things to be grateful for, like what you're excited for today. And then at the end of the day, actually, I don't even think there's an end of the day. I think it's just one thing. First thing in the morning, what do you, it's like basically like a gratitude journal with like a few things of like, what are you getting into today? But it keeps it very simple and it gets you into the groove and the habit of journaling in the morning. Once you go beyond that, you can start going into like more advanced journals. I really like the self journal is a good one. Um, I personally use the monk manual, uh, which is really cool because it has a quarterly, a monthly, or no, I'm sorry, a monthly, a weekly, and then a daily. And then it has a section in the back to like put your own notes. Um, so the, the monthly is like, let's reflect on the month and let's set targets for the next month. And the weekly is let's reflect on last week and let's set targets for the week. And then the daily is like, let's, let's focus on today first thing in the morning. And then at night, let's reflect on the day. And so there's a section for me to put my top three tasks for the day, my 10 to do's. Then it's like, uh, things I'm grateful for. Um, there's like a schedule and then, and then, uh, in the evening, I can look at what were the highlights of my day? What did I take away from the day? Uh, when did I feel the most stress? And that was like huge for me because you start realizing what in your day that happens over and over and over again. I found myself writing the same fucking thing over and over again. And then I realized I'm just a big dummy beating my head against the wall. Like I'm doing the same thing that's causing me anxiety every day. And it's a simple thing to tweak. And then I would remove it. And then you start doing it again. So there's little things in there that are really helpful. But um, the self journal, the mind journal, the performance planner by Brendan Bouchard is great. It's, it's a little more intense. It's pretty big if you want to go really into it. Um, but I think for beginners, the, the gratitude, the five minute journal is great. And then I think, uh, for me personally, the monk manual has been my favorite by far. Yeah. So 
What about the tailored life journal? Uh, those are unavailable for purchase. <laughs> so if you're a client, uh, you might get one in the mail. You never know because we send those out at random to clients. Uh, and those are my own variation of all these different ones I've used, which are really great too. Um, but yeah, I think everybody should be journaling and uh, those are some good ones for you. There you go. All right, that's the last one, last question of the day for this episode. So Great. Uh, no announcements today, guys. As always, thank you for listening. We appreciate you and we will catch you next time.